Amen. So again, we're in 1 Timothy, as Pastor Tony talked last week. Uh, Timothy, of course, was a uh, protege or an understudy of Paul, and Paul is writing this letter to Timothy uh, as he's addressing some issues that are happening at the church at Ephesus. And uh, of course, in the surrounding areas, he wants him to apply that. So tonight we'll be in the second part. <coughs> and so I wrote on your handout there at the very bottom, there'll be some other scriptures that we'll reference, uh, and they will be in that order. So if you want to go back and look at that, I didn't have room to put it all on there, but I did want to make sure that you had the reference for that. So I don't know if you've uh, seen any pictures on television or ever had the opportunity to visit the city of Rome, Uh, but several years ago I had the chance to go there, Melanie and I did, and we visited several things there. It's a fascinating city. There's lots of things to do in Rome, but there's also lots of history in Rome. There's also lots of biblical history in Rome. I shared a picture a few years ago of uh, the prison, the Mamertine prison that Paul was uh, placed in, and uh, Peter also spent some time in. It's also believed, I believe it's Acts chapter 11, that was the prison that uh, Peter was in uh, when uh, there were some different things that happened with Peter uh, through that. So if you've ever had a chance to go there, it's very fascinating. One of the things that you'll find in the city of Rome Uh, And probably the pinnacle of the city of Rome is the pinnacle of Catholicism, and that is the Vatican. The Vatican is where the Pope stays. And so uh, it's where the Pope lives. It's where everything Catholic happens. Um, The Vatican is actually its own sovereign nation inside of Rome, Italy. And uh, so, again, it is where everything Catholicism happens. And inside of the Vatican... There are billions with a B, billions and billions of dollars of items that are stored and on display. We took a tour of the Vatican, and it's it's unbelievable. I I don't know if all the money in the world could be combined to purchase the items that are inside of the Vatican. Artwork, if you're into art from the likes of Raphael, Michelangelo, to name just a few. Most famously uh, of Michelangelo's work is the Sistine Chapel, which is very interesting. It was painted between 1508 and 1512, and it was painted after construction, and the ceiling is painted, and it's 66 feet off the ground. So suffice it to say, there are quite a few things that are inside of the Vatican that are very, very impressive. Artifacts such as the bones of Peter, which Peter is believed to be buried in St. Peter's Basilica, which is the church inside Vatican Square. Of the billions and billions of dollars worth of items in the Vatican, not to mention the immeasurable amount of gold that they have there, none of the items of which I've mentioned to you are the most expensive. If I were to ask you tonight, what is the most expensive item inside of the Vatican, you would never guess. Because the most expensive item in the Vatican is a bathtub. It's shocking. I know. Trust me. You say, okay, well, you know, I've got a nice bathtub at my house but it's not the most expensive item in the Vatican. This bathtub is worth over $1 billion. It is worth, in some estimates, as much as $2 billion. Now, why is it worth so much? Well, specifically, this is not a Home Depot bathtub, okay? This bathtub was Nero's bathtub. Now, if you know anything about history, if you've ever studied history, Nero was severely anti-Christian. And Nero reigned from 64, uh, or 54 to 68. And in 1968, Nero committed suicide, according to history. And inside of his palace was a 25-foot diameter bathtub that weighs several tons. Now, what makes it so expensive? Well, it is made of super rare Egyptian marble. 
So here's this bathtub that, for whatever reason, um, the Catholic Church now owns. And they have it inside of the Vatican. It is the most expensive item on display. Something that you and I might would deem to be worthless. A tub from a murderer in the first century. And yet, it's the most expensive item on display. As I thought about that, I thought about things that are on display. You see, sometimes I think in the world, the, the world sees value differently than believers see value. You see, sometimes the things that the world doesn't see value in, well, those things can be very costly. Last week, Pastor Tony talked about how Paul had placed a very high value on the truth. And as Pastor Tony talked last Wednesday, he talked about how uh, Paul is addressing Timothy and he's addressing specifically uh, these, uh, the fantasies about genealogies and all these false teachings that have begun to be misrepresented at the church at Ephesus, which, mind you, Paul has only been absent from for three to four years. It's not been a long time since Paul's been there. They had Paul himself teaching, and yet just in three to four short years, you see where the apostasy has begun to take place. And what the world didn't see value in, what the world began to water down or to dilute, which is exactly What you and I are seeing today is that the world is diluting truth. And what the world doesn't see value in, the Bible specifically gives great value to. You see, Paul set out last week to remind Timothy of all of the work that God had already accomplished in Ephesus and how the power of the gospel was on display. You see, I think sometimes we have to be reminded of all of the work that God has done in our lives and what the power of the gospel actually has the ability to do in our lives. You see, when we come to church, it's easy for us, unfortunately, to be lulled to sleep to the reality of where God brought us from and to where we are. And I think oftentimes, especially for the legalists, we feel like we've got to present or we've got to display this image of perfection in order to reach those who don't know Jesus. Last week, we spent seven days with the team in the Dominican. And one of the consistent rejections of the gospel was this, I'm not good enough yet to follow Jesus. And I noticed this trend that there's this belief system that somehow has permeated this Latin American culture that I've got to be good enough to follow Jesus. And once I receive Jesus, that I will instantly become perfect. We spent two nights with the leaders of the church dispelling that truth, that they believe you get perfection once you receive salvation. And so for for some of us, when we look at the gospel and what we actually display for who Jesus is, I believe that sometimes we may, just like the church at Ephesus, be steering or veering just slightly off course into displaying something that's not, in fact, reality. You see, what is the most priceless item that we would say that this planet has ever known is the blood of Jesus, And that price was paid for you and for me to be purchased, to be bought, to be secured, to be rescued. And yet the world would look at you and me and they say, you know, Matt's not real important. You know, there's a lot of things. As a matter of fact, everything will exist when he's not here. We spend our lives committed to jobs that will be replaced the day after we no longer exist. And yet, What are we displaying with that? What are we committed to? What is the display of our lives? You see, the cost of our salvation was an extremely high price to pay for what some would deem worthless. As we'll see in just a second, Paul himself says, I am the foremost of sinners. And so for the world to believe that God would sacrifice his son for someone like Paul, for someone like you, And for someone like me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so the point tonight, the first blank on your handout, is not that we would swell with pride 
that we are valuable, but that we would be overcome with gratitude that in spite of my sin, God saw in me what I could not see in myself. Right, that when God looked at you and all of your sinfulness, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When God looked at us and all of our sinfulness, he said, I can redeem you. He said, I love you. He said, I can change you. He said, I can fix that. He said, I can use you. He looked at Paul, a notorious Christian killer who traveled over 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus in order to kill other Christians. And God looked at him and he intersected his life on that road to Damascus and said what? I will use you to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the question that we would ask ourselves tonight as we look at the heresy that was established in the first part of of 1 Timothy of, of Paul saying, Timothy, you must staunchly defend the gospel. You must display the reality of the truth of the gospel. And so what we must defend is what are we really displaying Because Christianity is not comfort, and Christianity is not benefit, and Christianity is not only what I want, but Christianity is what Jesus did. And sometimes that's going to cost me. You know my story. The catalyst for most things that I do, and the reason that I, I live on the coast is 1 Samuel 24, 24. I will not offer a sacrifice to God if it doesn't cost me something. Christianity that doesn't cost may not be Christianity. Paul would argue to Timothy, look, I know it's hard, and I understand that what they're teaching is gaining traction, but it's still not the truth. You see, Paul's desire was that God would display himself through Paul, sin and all. You see, I looked up display because, you know, when you study the Bible, sometimes there you know, words that are used, you know, that you say, hey, well, you know, what word is being used there? Did we lose anything in translation? The word display means to unfold. It means to, to show. And, and what God is doing in the story of our lives is he is unfolding who he is to a lost and dying world. You see, we, we talk about discipleship, and here's what we say about discipleship, that the gospel came to me while it was on its way to someone else. And so for you and for me, the end of the gospel is not me or you, that I'm a conduit for the gospel, that Jesus came to me while he was on his way to someone else. God came to Paul while he was on his way to someone else. And the same thing exists for us. And so when we talk about the story of our lives, what the story of our lives really is, is not just the amazing things that happen to me, but it is what are the amazing things that God is using through me, right? It is not that we would come to church only to gather and only to get, but that we would come to church to be recharged and to be encouraged because the world is a tough place, but that we would go back out and say, this is the gospel, That God loves you despite who you are. That you don't have to be like me to receive Jesus. In the Gospel of John, the disciples were at a crossroad in their faith. And you can read in John chapter 9 when you get a chance. In John chapter 9, they came across this blind man that was blind from birth. And they were confused as to why bad things happen in people's lives. And they were trying to, to, to wrestle with this reality that here's someone who didn't deserve to be blind because he was born blind. And yet he is blind. And so obviously there was something that he did to deserve this. And so they asked Jesus, well, Jesus, was it him who sinned in his mother's womb, which whatever, or was it his parents? And so Jesus responded to them. Here's what Jesus said. He said, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is saying, it's because I'm doing something. God is saying, it's because I'm doing something. You see, sometimes it's our sin that causes our circumstances. Every one of us have, has done something dumb. Like we, we've created some unfavorable situations, right? Is that the nicest way to say it? Like we've created some situations that are bad and we did it to ourselves. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes our circumstances have nothing to do with our sin, 
right? And here's this guy in John chapter 9, and he's born blind. He's never seen the light of day, and the disciples are trying to condemn him for something he didn't have anything to do with. And Jesus said, not the case, pal, not the case. I am displaying who I am to the world. The reason this man was born blind was not that I wanted him to suffer, not that I'm punishing him, but that I'm using him in order to display my glory. Jesus was very clear. It was to display the gospel to others. You see, God's been on a mission from the beginning of time to reveal himself to us. Remember, as we've been studying through Ephesians, and remember the very famous Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, and remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. He says, we are God's workmanship. As Pastor Tony has mentioned several times, the word there is poema. We are created for good works in Christ Jesus, that that is who we are. That is our identity. It is not our circumstances. It is not the definition of the world or the allowance of the world or the acceptance of the world. It is, what did Jesus say? He said that his works were displayed because I'm his workmanship for good works. And so Paul continues in 1 Timothy, we pick up in verse 8, to remind Timothy of just a few things. This is what he says. In verse 8, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, uh, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so here, Paul is continuing to parallel what this false teaching is to what the law is and to which eventually he will parallel to what the gospel is. And so what Paul is saying here is we know the law is good, And it was laid down for the lawless, and he begins to give a list of all the things that are lawless. In the second half, which we'll get to in in a few minutes, Paul begins to tell all the things about himself that were lawless, if you will. And, And here's what's happened in our culture. We have redefined everything. We've redefined everything, and and we can debate about a lot of other things. But specifically, here's where the problem started. When we started to redefine sin. When we started to make sin palatable, when we started to make sin acceptable, when we started to make sin conditional, when we started to redefine sin, that's when it fell off the table. And now we've started to redefine, we've recategorized. Now we're not even redefining anymore. Now we're recategorizing sin. And so what we've done is we've moved away from it. And the reality is, is the gravity of our sin is way greater than we're willing to admit. That if someone really knew, and I should probably give you a commercial here. There will be encouragement after this, so I apologize in advance, okay? If someone really knew the reality of who you are, if someone really knew the reality of who I am, the thoughts that you think, the actions that you portray, the things that you do that no one else knows, if someone really knew that, would they have the same perception of you that they have right now? And I would put money on the fact that they would not. Because you know why? Because the heart is deceitfully wicked, and you're way worse off than you think you are. It's easy for me to dress up, and it's easy for you to dress up and pretend that I've I've got it all together, but the reality is I don't have anything together, and neither do you. If it weren't for the redemption of Jesus, and if it weren't for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, this entire thing would already be over. And so I think it's important as we talk about the law that we understand I am a sinner. I am a sinner. It's not a badge that we carry around. It's something that we understand is true. Because if we don't understand we're lost, why in the world would we need a Savior? You see, that's my story. That's how I got saved. Because I grew up and everything was good. Right? And so I'm confronted with the gospel for the first time, the reality of my own personal sin when I was 18 years old. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, of course, man, we're all bad. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We love that verse because we're all in it together, 
right? And what did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He said, you must be born again. He didn't say y'all. It was singular. You see, for you and for me, that's the reality is that we've got to be confronted with our own sin. And until we deal with our own sin, how in the world can we capture redemption? How can we understand that? How can we live in that? Most of all, how can we display it? So the gravity of our sin, sin is what separated you and what separated me from God. Think about it. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That's separation. Isn't that what death is? It's just separation. And eternal death is eternal separation. And so we were separated from God because of death, because of sin. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What happened to them? They sinned, and what did God say? Banished from the garden. What did he do to them? He separated them from his presence. And so when we, we have to understand what sin is. It is not what I think it is. It is not what I justify. It is what does the Bible say that it is. Without an absolute truth, nothing is true. And so we have to say, it was me. I confess. It's not yes, but. It's yes. Am I a sinner? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yes. There is no justification or explaining it. You see, we thought we were good. And the reason that we're trained The reason that we think we're good is because from a very young age, we are trained to measure ourselves against each other. Think about it. I can always find someone, if I look long enough, who's worse off than me. I can. It's very easy to do. Just look around. You can find someone who's worse off than you. And so what happened is man became the standard. And instead of, uh, instead of measuring our sinfulness to God's standard, we measure our sinfulness to man's standard. And we say, well, I'm not as bad as, right? And so man becomes the standard. And then I feel good about myself because I went to church more than they did. Well, I don't cuss as much as they do. Or they drink more than this or whatever. You see what I'm saying? And so we have this standard of man and we become blissfully ignorant of our own sin. God knew that would happen which is why he sent the law. You see, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, what then shall we say? He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it were not for the law, John Clark Road would be called the Audubon, right? We would all drive as fast as our hearts desired. If there were no laws, we would do whatever we wanted. But he says, verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, believe it or not, we desperately need the law. We need the law. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, and there's certainly more. But I'm going to give you a couple of reasons tonight why it is necessary that we have the law. The law is necessary for a few reasons. Number one, because of its restraining power. Because of its restraining power. If there were no laws, would you feel safe going out in public? If, if we lived in the wild, wild west, somebody made you mad, game over, right? Someone, uh, you know, cut you off in traffic, you just ram them with your car, right? You can just do whatever you want. Someone has something that you like, when they go to sleep, you just go steal it, right? There's no ramifications. If there is no restraining power of the law, we live in utter chaos. We have to have restraint in our lives because why? Because we're sinful and we're going to do whatever our little heart desires. And if we don't have the restraining law to keep us in line, then we're going to go bananas, so there's this, the restraining law, but there's also the condemning part of the law. Because the law restrains, and then for those who break the law, what does the law do? Well, the law condemns. It shows us our sinfulness. That's why we have a, a legal system. That's why we have law enforcement. Because they're saying, you can't do that. And they're keeping the restraint in order. The last thing that the law does is the law sanctifies us. You say, well, how in the world is that possible? 
Well, what the, what the law does is it lays out God's mind as to our moral and ethical responsibilities towards God and man. What the law reveals to us is God's expectations. When we read the Ten Commandments, when we read, you know, they, they consider the law the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so when, when they would read Exodus and Deuteronomy, they would say, oh, well, that's what God's like. Oh, well, that's what God expects of me. Oh, that's what God desires. Oh, that's how God works. And so what the law does is it sanctifies us. It helps us have clarity on who and who God is and what God expects. Here's what the law was not intended to do. The law was intended to change us from within. It was not intended for us to comply without. It is not that we would just modify our behavior it's that the law would change us within, that we would desire to do those things. You see, this past Sunday, Pastor Tony referenced the fact that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And so we often hear about the new covenant, and Jeremiah spoke of this new covenant before it was instituted. He said it's different from the one that God's people had broken. He said, that uh, with the new covenant, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people, Jeremiah 31. And so this new covenant, this promise of this new covenant is not so much a new law, but it is a new heart that is able to receive the law. That we would not only believe that it's good for us to obey the law, law as in God's law, but that we would actually attempt to do that because we desire to do it. And so Paul is saying here that what the law does is it displays our sin. So the law displays the fact that, in fact, we are sinful. You don't even have to believe that you're sinful. The law will do its job for you. The law will reveal the fact that, in fact, you are not perfect and yet you're incapable of being perfect. And so these teachers in Ephesus, they were once again misrepresenting God. And they, they were uh, representing the law standards as being humanly attainable. And so, you know, they're, they're saying, hey, it's possible that, you know, you don't need Jesus, that you can be perfect. And, and you know, to be honest, this was probably something that they truly believed. You know, I was thinking a lot about belief systems. And, you know, as I mentioned last week, we were at DR and, you know, some of the things that they believe about perfection. And uh, you think about other belief systems in the world and you think about the things that they believe and the things that they live. And maybe even in your own life, the things that uh, maybe you believe or you used to believe. And the truth is most people's belief is sincere. I mean, nobody's just going around flippantly believing things. I mean, they're not. You believe it because you think it's right. You believe it because you think it's true. You believe it because you're sincere about that. And I mean, think of the, all the other world religions, you know, on the planet. They believe that. They believe those things. I mean, what does the gospel say? The, the Bible teaches us that God reveals himself to us. That's why often around here we say that God will give us, what, eyes to see and ears to hear. That, that the Bible, that God is revealing himself. And Jesus often said that, you know, that they would have ears to hear and that often that they did not. Well, why is that? The reason is because they sincerely believe what they believe. And whatever it is that you believe before you came to Jesus, you were probably very sincere with that. The problem with sincerity is that sincerity is insufficient to save sinners. You're, you're not going to stand before God and say, no, but God, I really thought that was true. It does, that doesn't change the truth. Sincerity doesn't change that. And, and it's the same thing for the uh, Ephesians false teachers at the church at Ephesus. Whatever it is that they were teaching... And ever how much they believed it, it didn't change the reality of it. The law still revealed the fact that it was incorrect. You see, sin is sin. Whether or you are sincere about it or you're ignorant about it, it's still sin. And so this is what Paul says in verse 15. 
He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In other words, Paul is saying, I did a lot of stupid things and I just want to be up front with you guys that it was wrong. And I'm not going to justify it because of all the good things that have happened in my life since then. And so the question that we would ask ourselves as we we get into the second part tonight is what is the story of your life displaying? What are the channels of your life's television showing the world? Is your life displaying that God is distant? Maybe your life is displaying that God is not involved in the day to day. Does your life display the fact that God is able, that God is loving, that God is present, that God is caring? What what does your life display? What do the television channels of your life show the world? You see, the shocking point of all of what Paul has led up into this point is what he says next. In verse 11, in spite of all of the sins in which he listed, he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Why? Look, if I have such an incredible message to deliver, I am not going to give it to a bunch of losers, right? I'm going to find the most able and capable and the smartest and the most, I mean, right? I'm going to find somebody who's going to get the job done, not somebody who's the absolute worst, And yet, what does the gospel do? The opposite of what the culture says. The gospel says, I'm going to entrust you. The worst, as Paul says in verse 15, the chief of sinners, I'm entrusting you to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he says, what is his response? Well, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd, had, I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So now would be a really good time to reach into the back of your pew and bring out that party blower we've been using for the last few weeks and get to blowing on it. That Paul said, in spite of my stupidity, God saw through that and he gave me mercy and he gave me grace and he used me. And what did he say? As an example to those who were to believe in him. Remember the question, what does your life display? Because your life is displaying something to those who will believe in him. I'm just telling you, I want to be a part of that, man. I want to be a part of that. That's the greatest mission on earth. I want to be a part of that. You see, what the law couldn't do Jesus did. Paul thought he was doing what was right, sincerely religious. You know, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet, everything that he tried to do to follow the culture law failed to get him redemption. And yet, what the law couldn't do, Jesus stepped in and did. Not because he deserved it, but because Jesus is good. You see, in Galatians chapter 3, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith, verse 23 Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. I can testify to that. 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so in spite of our failures, Paul says that God has entrusted you and me with the gospel. And what does Paul, what is his response to that? Gratitude. His immediate next verse, he says, I thank God. He's thankful that God would do that. This is the mercy of God. That is what mercy means. It is not getting what we do deserve. I preached on mercy a few weeks ago. If you didn't hear, you know, go back and listen to that. It is not getting what we do deserve. That instead of condemnation, instead of death, we receive life. You see, just as the law displays our sin, mercy displays God's grace. That through grace, God granted us mercy. Remember, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so the reality is, mercy is far greater than we realize. That in our sin, that the law revealed to us, that we... we, you know, came to know or was revealed to us that we could not receive salvation apart from Jesus, that the law would never earn us into faith in Christ. That's why the Old Testament sacrifice system was never good enough. And that's why it kept having to be repeated because it was never sufficient to achieve perfection. But Jesus could do that. And so in our own lives, it's not that we would run away from our sin. It's that we would run to Jesus because he's the one who can do something about our sin. And so in your own life, here's what I don't want you to do. And, and this, this took me a long time to believe. So here's Matt's confession, all right? So this took me a while to believe. And I've said this before, but several years ago, we were in the East Sanctuary. And uh, it was a Wednesday night, and we were just about done. And we get to the end of the service, and Tony says, so go to work tomorrow and tell everyone your deepest, darkest sin. And I thought, he has lost his mind. Who would do such a thing? We've got a reputation to keep here, right? That was legalism talking. And I thought, that is... How is that even possible? And so, literally, I never spoke a word to him about it. And for years, I'm like, how is that true? How is that? Here we are. See how God worked in my heart, right? That I believed that it was possible that somehow I had this reputation to keep. And the reality is, you know what? If I reveal the fact that, you know what? That was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. You know what? Here's a mistake that I made. When, here's what I did. I confess that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. When I'm revealing the reality of my brokenness, I am revealing the fact that there is hope for those that are broken, right? And so when I say, hey, I'm broken, you're like, I, I, I'm broken too, and, and he's following Jesus. And so if he's broken and he's following Jesus, then let's do some Sesame Street math here. That means that I can be saved, Right? That's what revealing our brokenness does. Look, you don't have a reputation to keep. Because the truth is, it's not as good as you think it is anyway. Right? I mean, come on. Let's be honest. So the truth is, confess. Right? Go to your D group and say, look, I've never told anybody this, but this is really hard for me. I struggle with, would you help me with this? Right? To say, look, I need help. Because there's freedom in truth. There's freedom in that. And so as I was writing this, I thought, this might be the best thing on the handout. I don't know. But it was pretty, it got me fired up. The worst of you is a chance to display the best of him. Right? The worst of you is a chance to display the best of him. Because here's the deal. The worst of you is not the end of the story if you know Jesus. So if you say, hey, I made a mistake and, you know, I was arrested or this happened or that happened. And you're like, that's a great story in it. And I'm like, no, that's a terrible story. I want to hear the part where you got saved, where you got redeemed, where you got rescued, where you repented, where God moved, where God changed it, where God used it. That's the end of the story, right? That the worst of me becomes the reality that there is a God who loves the broken and can save and redeem the broken. Twice in 1 Timothy, Paul emphasizes his reversal of fortune. He says, but I received mercy, verse 13 and verse 16. 
So what Paul is not saying here that, you know, you can act in ignorance and unbelief and somehow that's going to earn you mercy. What Paul is saying is that his ignorance and his disbelief did not disqualify him from receiving mercy. So for those who are ignorantly living in sin, for those who don't yet believe, as Paul said here just a few verses before, to be an example to those who were to believe. It is the hope of the gospel that compels us forward, that there is a chance that I can be forgiven, that there is a chance that God can use me, that there is a chance that my life matters. That's what the world wants to know. You see, Paul talks about this mercy. He says there's this mercy because of ignorance and this mercy because of patience. He says in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy after I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. In verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. You see, that is what God is doing in your life and in my life. Is he looks at my life and your life and he says, you know what? They sin. That was one of the big questions last week is, you know, if I sin and I die after I get saved, do I go to heaven? I'm like, yes, yes. There's freedom in knowing that. Can you imagine believing that the next sin could condemn you to hell if you die before you confess? Can you imagine how that could tie you up, how it could drag you down, how you would never live with hope or freedom? You would always live under this cloak of condemnation that you're going to make a mistake and forget or fail to confess it. And what Paul is saying here is, look, God is patient with your unbelief. God understands that you're ignorant. Now, we don't want to believe that about ourselves, but it's true. I mean, he was patient with Adam when Adam sinned. He could have said, all right, let's start over. This didn't work out the way I wanted it to. That's not what he said. God was patient with Saul which came to be Paul when he helped to stone Stephen. And the truth tonight is this, is that God was patient with you. And God was patient with me. I would say few of any of us ever received the gospel the first time we ever heard the gospel. That God revealed himself, continually revealed himself, and he drew you to himself. And he showed you how he's working in other people's lives. And he used people and circumstances and certainly the word of God to reveal himself to you, to where you came to this crisis of belief, a confrontation with the reality of Jesus to which you surrendered. That's what salvation is. So despite this misunderstanding and errant teaching, the law and the gospel are on the same moral base. They complement each other. People have always been, they will always be saved by grace. So this law displays our sin and God's mercy displays his grace. And what God's grace does is displays Jesus. You see, John chapter one, verse 14 says that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. And you got to have grace to get to truth, right? You got to love them before you can lead them. And so when, when the law came and revealed our sin and we began to display, we, re, we realized that I'm actually displaying the wrong channel, that the law is showing me that the channel that's on my television is displaying the wrong thing. And so God came and he said, look, I understand in your unbelief and your ignorance, but I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And so in God's mercy, he began to change us and reveal himself to us and shape us into who he wanted to be. And we realized for the first time that what his mercy did is it made available the grace of God. Because if God would have shown up in your life and in my life when the confrontation of sin took place and mercy had not been present, grace would have never arrived because we would have gotten what we deserved, separation from God. But because of the grace of God, I was given mercy so that I would know grace. And it's the same thing for you. And so what does Paul say about grace? I don't want you to leave with this abstract idea of grace. He says a couple of things about grace. Number one, he says that grace is personal. You see, he talked about all the things that he had done in his life, and he brought it to himself. He says, I received mercy, that the grace of God was revealed to me. So he said, look, grace is personal. And then he said, number two, grace is available. He's saying that I was an example of this grace so that others would come to know 
Jesus, that, that this grace is personal and that this grace is available. Now I want to show you as we rewind for just a second. And I want you to see what he says here. He says in verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I want you to think about that for just a second, okay? He says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I've been to a few parades in my life, and I've never known anyone that was in the parade. All right, I, go, I went to the Long Beach um, Cruising the Coast Parade here a few months ago, back in October. And uh, so, you know, they toss beads and, you know, stuffed animals and all those other things out of those cars when they come by. You've been to those parades. When they toss those beads out of the parades, maybe you go to Mardi Gras parades, or they put, toss the, you know, whatever out of those uh, cars. Is that, is that bead coming for me or is that bead coming to me? You see, when they're in those cars and they're tossing things out, they don't care who gets them, right? It doesn't matter. Maybe you've tossed some things out of a parade to people that were watching. You see, the difference in grace coming to me and grace coming for me is significant. You see, when grace is coming to me, I might, I might, you might accidentally intercept it. I mean, have you ever been standing at a parade and you were going to receive something and then someone jumped in front of you and all of a sudden that's no longer your item, right? Right? You see, when grace is coming to me, something might happen in the way. But when there's grace for me, well, that's a different story. That means that it was intended for me, that God was specific with that, that he was intentional. You see, this grace that Paul is talking about is grace that is for you and grace that is for me. It's not just grace that came to me, but it is grace that came for me. It is grace that rescued you. It is grace that rescued me. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because grace is the admission price that was paid for every believer. It's the only way we receive salvation is through grace. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. So Paul is saying that in spite what you've done, that we have been appointed to his service to display through us and our sinfulness to a lost world the mercy and grace by which we have been saved. So just as our sin displayed our need for a Savior, the grace of God that saved us now displays His glory through us. You see, as you and I live for Jesus, the glory of God is displayed through us. And now we're able to show the world, we're able to display to those around us the grace that is for them. You see, what was once a vessel of destruction is now a trophy case of God's goodness. That God loved you and he loved me. That in spite of ourselves, that he chose to display. Him. I mean, think about it. There is a better plan. We are not the best plan. But yet that's the plan. That he chose to display himself through us. That in spite of our past, in spite of our failures, God is willing and God is able to use everything in our lives as a display of who he is and what he is capable of doing. Look, if you're here tonight and you say, look, I'm not sure if I understand or believe what God is capable of doing. Well, neither was Paul. He said, I was ignorant and I didn't believe. And yet look what God did in his life. And so here's the question. I want to leave you with some application. So here's the question that I want to ask you tonight. What is the channel of your life displaying? Now, it's not meant to, you know, knock you down or make you feel bad. I just want you to ask. It's reflective. You know, what is it? What is the channel of your life reflecting? What is it displaying? Does it display that God is love? Are you loving to other people? Does it display that there is hope in the gospel? Does it display that your circumstances don't define your heavenly father? 
Does it display that your hope is not in what you see, but is in Jesus? What does the channel of your life display? Well, if you're here tonight and you say, I, I want to display Jesus, how can I do that? Well, it's very, 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 very simple. Maybe your life is displaying all of the reruns of the bad things that have happened to you. Maybe, maybe your life is displaying all of the reruns of all of the good things that God has done in your life. You know, I know, of course, you know, Pastor Tony's been here 25 years. I've been here for 10 years, and I feel like a lot of times I tell the same stories. And then I realize, you know what? That's my story. It's a rerun of the goodness of who God is. And so, so oftentimes we say, oh, well, you know, I've already talked about that. Talk about it again. Tell the story again of what God did and how God worked and all the things that God has done. Let the reruns, I mean, aren't those some of your favorite shows on TV or the reruns, right? Let the rerun of your life play of all of the good things. Maybe the channel that you're displaying is the new episodes of how God is working. Those are great channels to watch. But let me make a suggestion to you tonight. Can I encourage you tonight to hit the plus button? To hit the plus button on your remote. You see, the question is, what are we displaying? When we constantly push the negative button in our lives, God gets quieter and quieter. But when you amplify the positive in your life, God is on display. Think about it. When you, you're sitting in front of the television and you turn the volume up button, you're hitting that plus button, right? And what happens? You can hear better. You can pay attention better. It's easier to see what's happening on the television. And even when you're not even directly looking at the television, you have an idea of what's playing because you can hear it. But when you turn the television down, what does that mean? You're distracted, that you're looking at something else. And the voice of God gets quieter and quieter in your life when you're negative. And when you're getting quieter and quieter, when you're not declaring the things of God, when you're not allowing the reruns of the goodness of God to play in your life. And so hit the plus button. Declare that you want to be positive. Pray that you'll be positive. Ask God to help you be more positive. It's easy for us to look around. I'm the number one candidate that you can look around and say, man, this is bad. But I have to remind myself to hit the plus button that there is so much more that is better. There is so much more that is good. There is so much more that God is doing. There is so much more that is left for God to do. And that his desire is that grace that was for me would be displayed for others because I was positive enough that they could hear what was being said. Can I encourage you to do that tonight? Let's pray. God, thank you for the reruns of your goodness. Thank you.